Hello, and welcome back to the Hi-Ho Podcast. My name's Victoria Sunden. And I'm David Westbrook. And this is Have You Heard Of? Yeah, that's my favorite bop. I'm changing it up. I'm switching the season. Watch out there. I only know one season. Wow, how uncultured of you. Dang. Perhaps I I suggest getting good. Dang, who'd have thought a landscaping firm could do all that? The hero we needed (laughs) but didn't deserve. So true. Alright, well welcome back to the Hi-Ho Podcast, or have you heard of? And we are on our final part of our Renaissance series. Yay, Renaissance. Yay, Renaissance. And we've managed to cover every country except for France, so we're saving the best for last. And Every, t- every major country of the Renaissance. <laughs> yes, we've done... There's a lot... <laughs> There's a lot more countries out there during the Renaissance, but these are the big ones. Today, there are two countries. And maybe back in the day, there are two countries, too. I don't know. I'm not a history scholar, but I'm talking about two countries today, technically. And I'm going to ask you, David, have you heard of Antoine Bousnois? Do I need to go ask Kylie how to say this guy's last it's name? It's Bousnois. 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 <laughs> I've not heard a bus noise. Um, beep, beep. Uh no, I have not heard of Antoine Bousnois. Well, um he is known as one of the more famous Franco-Flemish um Renaissance composers. First, I don't know why cuz I've also never heard of him. Um but he does play a big role into um French Renaissance music and the shaping of French music um, in the Baroque era as well. I feel like France always gets overlooked in the history of classical music. Mm-hmm. Well, like I would say that they get overlooked later on, like yeah, past the Romantic era, because you pass like Debussy, all those people, um, and so like. I think past that, they get a little overlooked because, like, I don't know what French modern music sounds like. I have no clue. Um, I really could not tell you what modern, like, 21st century classical music really sounds like. Give me that atonal French music. Yeah, right? Like, well, because, I mean, you you can think of, like, Debussy. Ravel is weird. He's, like, kind of French. Mm-hmm. Right? But you also get, like, Poulonk and... Do love me some Poulonk. Yeah, love me some Poulonk, love me some, um, some Duraflay, you know, people like that. Some but, like... Flare. Yeah, right, but, like, I don't think I can name you a single French Baroque composer. Luli? Luli? I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just me today, y'all, um... 
David mm-hmm. is leaving due to personal reasons. Notably, uh, embarrassment. Anyway, um, well, Antoine Bourgeois was a French composer and a poet in the early Renaissance era. And he is most notably uh, a part of the Burgundian school, which was a group of composers active in the 15th century in what is now northern and eastern France, Belgium, and the Netherlands. Um, And they were centered on the court of the Dukes of Burgundy. Mm. We'll get more into that later, but he's most known for being the leading figure of the late Burgundian school after the death of Dufay, Guillaume Dufay, who is a Mm. very famous French Renaissance composer. Yes, I have definitely heard of Dufay. It's not Dufay, Dufay. It's not Dufay, it's Dufay, yes. So, um, there's not a lot of information on his birth or his childhood. Uh, What we do know is that he was born circa 1430, at or near Bethune, which is a city in northern France, southwest of Lille, um, okay. in a commune called Bouzne. I had to ask two people who speak French how to pronounce that. Um, <laughs> uh, that's most likely where his last name is from. Hmm. That that's, makes sense. Yeah. So, um, there's some suspicion that he is related to the aristocratic family of Bouzne, in particular, um, a man named Philippe de Busnay, which is a um, canon of the Notre Dame in Lawn. Mm-hmm. And they might be related, but they, nobody knows. Mm-hmm. Uh, despite that, he obviously had an excellent musical education, uh, probably at a church choir school or somewhere like in um, northern France or central France. Yeah. His aristocratic origin may explain any early associations he had with the French royal court, and there's documentation of that. Um, Mm -hmm. As early as the 1450s, it references to him appearing in the French royal court, and um, in 1461, he was a chaplain at Tours. Hmm. Interesting. Yep. There's also documentation saying that he filed a petition for absolution in Tours, dated uh, February 28th, 1461, when he was roughly 31 years old, in which he admitted to being part of a group that beat up a priest to the point of bloodshed. Was it just like a fad back then to beat up to, priests? To beat people up? Specifically like, church people. Specifically <laughs> church people. I feel like this this is not the first person that we've covered in this series that bludgeoned a priest. Not once, but five times. Pretty much. No, I mean, this guy. Oh, Oh, five times he bludgeoned a priest? <laughs> or five times he petitioned for absolution. It's not oh. clear. But oh. I like to think that five times he, um, and on five occasions he uh, beat up a priest with a group of people. Which you How shouldn't do. You? do. Don't, pe- no. don't beat people up. No, um, we don't punch people. So this might suggest that... Um, Bourgeois was not very, um, very much a man of peace. I don't think he was. <laughs> he bludgeoned a priest. So, from early on, he got into some hot water with the church. Um, and so he was already put on like a, in like a probationary status with the church. And during this stat, like this hot water time in the church, yeah. um, 
He was foolhardy enough to celebrate Mass, although he was not an ordained priest. And that was an act that got him excommunicated until Pope Pius II pardoned him. This man has used up every <laughs> single get-out-of-jail-free card yep. I feel like the Catholic <laughs> Church can give him. Mm-hmm. Like, he's already beat up a priest. He's now impersonated being a priest. I assume the only thing left for him is to become a priest. That's the one thing he doesn't do. Mm. He really missed out on a calling right there. Mm-hmm. So he moved from the cathedral in Tours to the Collegiate Church of St. Martin, which is also in Tours, um, mm-hmm. where he became a subdeacon in 1465, roughly at the age of 35. Okay, so he's, like, becoming somewhat of a holy man. Yeah, he pretty much, in early in the early parts of his life, he stays with the church until he moves to, um, to the court of the Duke of Burgundy. And mm-hmm. I'll get more into that later. Yeah, I gotcha. So, at this institution, at the Collegiate Church of St. Martin, mm-hmm. uh, he meets none other than Mr. Akagem, who was the treasurer at the institution at the time. Oh, Akagem. And they seem to have known each other and uh, very well throughout their lives. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Akagem and Bousnois are friends. Later in 1465, Bousnois moved to Poitiers. Where sure. he not only became the master of the choir boys, but managed to attract a flood of talented singers from the entire region. Should this man be allowed to watch over children? I feel like I feel like he's done enough to put him into that like precarious like. Eh, I don't know about this one, my guy. They didn't have um, job references back then. Thank God for that, because I don't think this man would have been able to get a job. Nope. I guess back then though it was I guess back then though it was pretty easy to just like disappear and start a new life, you know? Mm-hmm. Not a lot that can be traced. Yeah, it's not like it's not like news could spread fast. I think horse was the fastest way it could be uh be spread. Carrier pigeon. Crow Bird, so true. Raven. Ah yes, good old Raven. Uh, that's what I meant to say. <laughs> Not crow. That's okay. I got you. Crows, crows, whole different things. Yep. <laughs> um. So he was already building a reputation for himself as a uh, teacher and a scholar and a composer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was very popular in that region of France. Yeah. Uh, but he departed suddenly and mysteriously in 1466. Um, and nobody knows why. That's suspicious. That's very suspicious. That very is fishy. sus. Don't know if I want to get into that. Yeah, I'm. I'm afraid. <laughs> right. So he leaves and he moves to Burgundy in 1466, and by 1467 he um, was already at the Burgundian court. Mm-hmm. And so what? Bur- wait. In what year? In what 14- year are we in? 67. Sorry, I know a fair amount about like. Burgundy and all of that through video games of like the Burgundian inheritance and all of that. So I'm just like keeping a mental track in my head of like, because I know that stuff gets really bad in like 1477. Yes. Yes. But anyway, continue. We'll get there. We're um, not there yet. Nope. So Burgundy at the time is a region in East Central France and it's made up of like France, 
the Netherlands, Belgium, you know, that region there. Franco-Flemish, if you will. Totally. You want to give us a quick crash course on Burgundy? I mean, you pretty much... I mean, you pretty much, you pretty much just explained it. It's like the Netherlands, Belgium, and like northern France, that like lowlands area. Yeah, what's happening uh, in the video game world at the time? Uh, Mary. Not yet. Not yet. No. Forget I asked. I know more than you do. Um, See, you know more than I do. Yeah. <laughs> so I just know I click the button and I inherit Burgundy. Wish it were that easy. <laughs> oh, if only. So, um, his first compositions at the court, um, appeared immediately before the ascension of Charles the Bold as the Duke of Burgundy. Um, I know and that he name. ascended into the dukedom on June 15th, 1467. Mm-hmm. And one of his motets, In Idraulis, contains a dedication to Charles the Bold. Oh, that's cute. Mm-hmm. So, Charles the Bold. Uh, on becoming Duke of Burgundy, he gets that nickname of Charles the Bold for his fierce and sometimes reckless military adventurism, which is some very sad foreshadowing. But uh, Charles um, not only loved war, but he also appreciated music, and he would uh, reward Bourgeois for works composed while in his service, and he played the harp himself. Oh, wow. And he, com- a little... he composed some stuff too, but... Nobody, like, knows where that is. What a little multi-talented man. A little renaissance man, some might call him. Dang. Dang, got him, coach. In addition to serving Charles as a singer and a composer, Bourgeois accompanied the Duke on his military campaigns. So, Bourgeois was at the siege of Neuss in Germany um, in 1475, but he... um, did not attend the Battle of Nancy in 1477, and for good reason, because it was at that battle that Charles the Bold was killed. Yes, because I remember that he had no successors. Yeah. And that's what sparks the whole Burgundian inheritance fiasco. Yes, so that marks the end of Burgundian expansion. Yes. Forever. Dang. Really got him there. So, um, he dodged that bullet, quite literally, or dodged that arrow, or whatever they fought with back then. Yeah, arrow, sword. Dodged that sword. Halliburton. What's that thing called that you, you stick people with? Bat, batnet, batnet. First off, it's a bayonet. <laughs> Second off, those are for guns. I think the horse you're thinking of is spear. No, it was it was more complex than a spear. A pike? Whatever. Anyway, he survived. He did not die at that battle. So, Bourgeois remained um, in the Burgundian court under the service of Mary of Burgundy mm-hmm. until her death in 1482. So, it's not very clear what he did in those ten years after the death of Mary of Burgundy and when he died. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the time of his death, he was employed by the Church of Saint Sauveur in Bruges um, as a rector and a cantor. Mm-hmm. And he died on November 6, 1492, at the age of 62. 
So that is the end of the life of Antoine Bourgeois. Do we just not know how he died? No, I didn't didn't find anything. Yeah, I guess we just don't know anything about his death. That's so weird. If you know, sound off in the comments below. So true. If you're a if you're a Bourgeois, if you're a Bourgeois scholar. A, bu- a bus noise scholar. Yeah, if you're a bus noise scholar, send us a beep beep. Thank you. You're welcome. So, because there's not that much on his life, I want to take this time to talk about the Burgundian school. It's important. As we know, Bourgeois spent most of his life affiliated with the Burgundian school. And as I've mentioned, it's a Franco-Flemish composition school of thought centered around the Dukes of Burgundy. It was formed in the early 14th century. I think the exact date is like 1328. Um, That's when they first convened. And it lasted until the beginning of the 16th century. So that's the 1500s. So that's a Mm -hmm. good 200 years of composition. Yeah, that's a good amount of time for a school of music. So back in the day, in the late medieval and early Renaissance days... um, Cultural centers would move around Europe based on the change of political stability. Notably, like, the Pope, the Antipope, and the Holy Roman Emperor. I just love Antipopes. Every single time anybody (laughs) says the word Antipope, I just get excited. Because it sounds so cool, but it's really not. Nope. Right? But, like, you know, just... It's the Antipope. It sounds so... Metal. It's sounds, so mysterious. dangerous. Yeah, like yeah, the, like, yeah, like... Anti-Pope. What the heck is the Anti-Pope? It sounds like Satan. But no, it's just another Pope. There just happens to be two Popes. And the Pope mm. that you don't like is the Anti-Pope. Sometimes there's three Popes. You Sometimes there's ten Popes. You know, one Pope, two Pope. Red Pope, pope blue pope. pope. Nice. <laughs> okay, so, um... Cultural centers would move around Europe based on, you know, politics. Yeah. So, during the reign of the House of Valois, uh, Burgundy became one of those major cultural centers, and that was aided by the reigns of Philip the Good and Charles the Bold, both Dukes of Burgundy. Mm Mm-hmm. So, musicians from the surrounding region would come to Burgundy to study and further their own careers as the reputation of the area spread. So, yeah. uh, Burgundian rulers, as I mentioned, were um, not merely just patrons of the arts, but they also like took part of the arts. Mm. So, these dukes also encouraged the composition of secular music, which is rare for European music history. Mm-hmm. Um, and this becomes a characteristic that separates the Burgundian school and Burgundy as a cultural center from the rest of the Renaissance era. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Which I thought was pretty interesting, so I didn't know that about that. Yeah, no, I didn't know that either. So after the death of Charles the Bold, um, France and the Netherlands split politically, and the French style of music began to diverge from, uh, you know, what they were already doing. So it was becoming more secular in the 1500s, pro- and that's probably the beginning of French royal court music in the Baroque mm-hmm. period as we know it. Yeah. So, the Burgundian school favored secular music, and they were mostly known for their chansons in the four farm fiques, 
which are the Rondo, not the Rondo, but the Rondo, like D-E-A-U-X, mm-hmm. Rondo, uh, the Ballade, the Viroli, and the Burgette. Didn't those eventually enough turn into dance forms? I feel like they turned into dance forms for, like, French suites. Probably. Because I definitely, I definitely have played, I think, a Bach French suite that has a Viroli and a uh, Rondo. Yeah, that sounds it. about right. You know, you know them Baroques with their, their dance forms. Oh, they love a good dance. You can't blame them, though. It's not like they had anything to do. They couldn't watch Game of Thrones. They couldn't. They couldn't play well, foosball. I guess. I guess in some ways they were watching Game of Thrones, except every day was just a new episode. In real life. <laughs> real life Game of Thrones. Um. But yes, I I do think that these eventually uh, became dance forms. Yeah. Don't quote us on that though. But I think that's right. But we do know that these are based on the poetic forms, which all consisted of a complex pattern of repetition of verses and a refrain with musical content in the two main sections. So I think I mentioned this a few episodes back, how um, early musical forms and like rhythmic notation were based on literature forms or rhythmic notation. Mm-hmm. So despite favoring secular music... Uh, most composers of the Burgundian school also wrote some sacred music, notably masses and motets. Mm-hmm. And now, here are some common musical techniques of the Burgundian school. We've mm. got using a cantus firmus in their masses, which is a pre-existing melody um, that is used as the base of the composition. Oftentimes, that's the original chant of whatever text is being sung in the mass mm-hmm. they use a technique called Faubourdon which is the movement of parallel 6-3 chords that imitate chant It's very Sounds pretty. Good. Yeah. yeah. David will play examples of everything. <laughs> Apparently enough, David will play examples of everything. Yep. We have the Burgundian cadence, which um, is a cadence that has parallel force on the upper voices. It sounds disgusting, in my opinion. Two thumbs down. Um, but you know, you know, Renaissance music and their parallel movement. They were still trying to figure it out. It's okay. And um, rhythmically, they would often use duple meter divided into threes, which is modern day six eight. One of the pieces that we're looking at is in six eight. Yeah, I think big two. Yep. And then one of the pieces that we're looking at is also in uh, four two, or at least that was the original rhythm that was in. On my end, I converted that thing straight away into 4-4. How advanced. What can I say, you know? So now let's take a deeper look into Bourgeois music. Um, So Bourgeois' contemporary reputation was pretty huge. Um, 
He was probably the best known musician in Europe between Dufai and Akagem, which is a big feat. That's that's big because those are two big name people. Like anybody that takes a basic music history course that well, no. talks about the Renaissance would know those people. Mm-hmm. Medieval <laughs> Renaissance that era. Yeah, he's no Palestrina, but he's up there. Is anybody Palestrina? So Bouzois wrote mostly sacred and secular music, mostly secular music. Um, he wrote two Contes Firmus Masses. He wrote eight motets that have survived. The other ones that he wrote are most likely lost. And stylistically, his music can be considered, quote, a midpoint between the simplicity and homophonic textures of Du Fai, but the soon-to-be pervasive imitated counterpoint of Josquin de Pre, end quote. Hmm. That's an interesting little juxtaposition there. Yep. He often used imitation, not often, um, occasionally used imitation, but he did it skillfully by creating smooth and singable melodic lines that had a strong feeling for triadic sonorities, anticipating 16th century practice. Nice! Look at him go. Mm-hmm. And he wrote about 60 chansons that have survived. All of these chansons are either for three or four voices... He wrote two masses, eight motets, two hymns, a Magnificat, and a Credo. Nice. Look at him go. Yeah. That's a fair amount of work to put put out. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's Antoine Bourgeois. Nice. It sounds like he had a pretty eventful life until he disappeared off the face of the earth, and then nobody knows what happened to him. He Just in general, nobody knows what happened to him. Yeah, it sounds like it. History is bound to repeat itself. Ain't that the truth? Alrighty, so we're going to go ahead and move on to the listening portion of the podcast. So we're going to listen to two songs today. One is a secular song, and the other one is a sacred song. So to start off with, we're going to do the secular song. This is a chanson um, for three voices, though I've heard several recordings of it that actually use it in a rondo style, which is the style that the recording that I have for you today is in. Um, And we'll talk more about what that means at the end. Now, as far as the title goes, I'm not going to to butcher the title of this piece. So, please welcome to the podcast my wife, who will say for us now the title of the piece. Bella Kai, le sergent d'amour. Thank you, Kylie. (laughs) Thank you, Kylie. A real savior. So now I must warn you, though, dear listener, um, there is no translation into English that I could find of this piece, and I do not think that the Google Translate translation of this piece is very useful, and I'm also not about to ask Kylie to translate a bunch of 1400s French, um, because that's rude. (laughs) So... All I'll say is that the main chorus of this song says, A warm welcome, sergeant of love, 
who knows how to do his exploits. Take what you will from that. Just know that this is, from what I can understand, pretty darn secular. Yes, open in- open interpretation. Open for interpretation. France, you know, early 1400s. You know how it is. You know how it is. Forget about it. I'm walking here. Nothing says nothing says France quite like New York. Nope. So true. Alrighty. So without further ado, let's get started listening to this first piece. Again, this is whatever Kylie just said. Enjoy. Enjoy. <laughs> Yeah, so we've got like a little canon in the beginning. Is that mm-hmm. typical of the rondo form, or is this just bourgeois? I think being that's just fancy. I think that's just typical of the Renaissance in general. Uh, um, usually of the Renaissance, like they would start together and then create polyphonic texture. Um, not so much like a they start or like they start on a sequence or on a canon. Yeah, but I will say that they only the very beginning of each passage has anything in common. Besides rhythm. So the rhythms are typically the same throughout okay. the tenor one and the bass line. So at the top and the bottom line, the rhythms stay pretty similar. And then that middle line is acting kind of independent. Mm-hmm. And for every, for everyone listening to this, so rondo form, essentially enough, is also a form for poetry. So this piece has two main sections, an A section and a B section. And the form goes A, B, A, 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 B, A, B. So that was an A, B. Now here, women come in with, the un- with another A section. Mm-hmm. But it's basically the beginning again. Yes, it's exactly the beginning again. We heard it a few times and we got that Burgundian cadence. Yes. Like there, like there it was again. Mm-hmm. Where it, um, the top voices um, moved down a, a half step and in parallel force. Yeah, this sounds like a canon to me. So there was our A section with the women, and now the men are going to come back in with another A section. Yeah, right, but if you look at the actual texture of the music itself, you'll see that it's not actually like a strict canon. Right? It's weird. Uh, harmonically, it, there's like a sense that it modulates to the parallel major, not the parallel major, the relative major, there we go. Um, but there's not a lot of functional harmony yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. 
And so the men just finished up their A section, and now the women come and they sing an A section, and they'll carry this all the way through, I believe, to the B section also. I wonder if there's any, like, poetic symbolism on the music repeating itself so much, or if it's just, like, a stylistic thing. So, there, if you look at the text in the music, right, you can see that the text, the A section is for for verses 1, 3, 4, 5, and 7, and then the B section is for verses 2, 6, and 8. I assume that there's probably something to do textually with it that makes it, um, that gives it that demeanor, but I'm not quite sure, honestly. I don't know much about literary history. Is the B section the one that's in the relative major? For the most part? Yes, I believe so. Okay. Well, there's that too. And they still um, are ending the cadences on open chords, so it doesn't end on a major or a minor chord. It'll end on the root and the fifth. Yeah. So it's never quite... Resolved. Resolved, yeah. It just kind of ends. Well, at least to our ears, it doesn't resolve. Yes. Obviously, like... We've been exposed to a lot of different types of tonality, a lot of major, a lot of minor, and so we kind of know what to expect. So it can be sometimes um, pretty jarring to hear open chords at the very end. Yes. That's something that the English introduced later on in the Renaissance era. Mm -hmm. So now for the final B section, we get both the male and female voices coming together. Nice. There's kind of a sense of a canon in that middle part right there. Mm -hmm. Because the same um, rhythmic motive uh, repeats itself. Yeah, yeah, it does. Nice. Yeah, it's a fun fun piece. It's interesting. Um, I think it does a really good job at showing off that Renaissance kind of the funkiness that comes with the renaissance. Mm-hmm. I think this would be a really cool piece for, like, a chamber choir to do. Yeah, like, If they yeah. were to do, like, a study on renaissance music and they didn't mm-hmm. want to do bird. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, if they wanted to branch out and do some composers that aren't just bird and talus and palestrina and people like that, you know? Mm-hmm. And this is also relatively accessible. There's nothing, like crazy going on in this. It's not like there's a bunch of giant leaps or anything like no, that, you know? This is this is very singable. Yeah, this is singable. Even like a community choir or something like that, I think, would have no problem doing this. Yeah. Cool yeah. stuff. Cool stuff. Alrighty, so now we're gonna move on to the next song. So as I said first, the first one that we listened to was a secular song. This one that we're going to listen to now is for four voices instead of three, and it is a sacred song. 
So the title for this song is just Noel. Um, and the text is just Noel, Noel, Noel. Um, pretty complicated stuff. Pretty, pretty complicated stuff, you know, but hey, what can I say? It was simpler times back then. Because of the fact that this is a short song and it's just the piece repeated twice, we're going to listen through on the first half and just not say anything, and then we'll talk about it once the repetition occurs. So, let's get started. It's a very standard renaissance piece. Yeah, there's not a lot happening polyphonically. Like, it's very simple, very basic. Mm -hmm. Um, But what makes this interesting for renaissance music is the rhythm and how complex it is. Yeah, it's very rhythmic. He does a really good job of kind of pairing the soprano tenor line and then the alto bass line, right? And just kind of making, like, two separate wires out of it. It's rhythmically complex and there's some variation in harmony and tonality. It doesn't just stay in um, G minor. No, I, I like the fact that it kind of moves around a little bit. Right, but it's not it's not moving crazy far away from the home key like you can get at times. It's staying pretty solidly in that kind of like G minor ish area. Yep, and we still got open chords at the very end. Classic mm-hmm. Renaissance. Classic Renaissance. You also at the very end had that very common like everybody kinds to kind of comes together and you get like some eighth or in this case 16th note like moving around wiggling around a little bit circling around your home key right before you finally come back and reach that home well in this case octave and a fifth yeah and because the text is very simple um this is just a good vehicle of letting the music glorify god and the text um, so yeah, this is really, this is very nice. Yeah, no, it is really nice. Um, I like it a lot. I think it's a really nice little Christmas song that you could def- I could definitely see. I, I like the fact that it's short, right? 
So I could definitely see this being a very useful piece if you were doing, you know, like a, almost like a Christmas surge or something like that, and you had a spot where you might need to repeat a song like multiple times, you know? Like yeah, a call, you know, call and response kind of deal? Yeah, like a call and response type deal, or say like you're singing as people are like entering into the church and all of that, or like as like... Communion. Communion or something like that, right, where you just kind of need to go on for a little while. But I think it's I think it's a really good piece, and I think it's really pretty. I also think it's pretty. Mm-hmm. Good on you, bus noise. Good on you, bus noise. Beep, beep. Beep once for bus noise. So true. Beep twice for bousinois. <laughs> Dang. Yeah, well that concludes our Renaissance series. Didn't end with a bang. Ended with a beep beep. Started from the bottom. Now we're here. Beep beep. Beep beep. We're cutting all of that out. <laughs> no, I'm keeping it. Mm. We'll see. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for tuning in to our Renaissance series. We had a lot of fun talking about this super cool, super fun era of music. A lot happened. It literally went from zero to 100 very quickly. Yeah, it did. Yeah. And so um, we have more composers that we're excited to talk about. Um, and we have that in store for you coming up shortly. So stay tuned if you want to hear more of that. I'm particularly excited about next week's composer for reasons that I won't disclose just yet, but we'll Me get there. too. But yeah, thanks a lot for tuning in. Yeah, and once again, my name's Victoria Sundin. And I'm David Westbrook. And if you want to keep up with us on social media, you can follow us on Instagram at Podcast. And if you want to send us an email with any composers you suggest that we cover or any observations you made from the music we listened to today, you can email us at thehihopodcast at gmail.com. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We appreciate any um, constructive criticism or any praise. We always appreciate praise. So um, drop a review there if you'd like on Apple Podcasts. And we'll catch you guys next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.